For as the light of the morning cometh out of the east, and shineth even unto the west, and covereth the whole earth, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Therefore sanctify yourselves, that your minds become single to God, and the days will come that you shall see him. For he will unveil his face unto you, and it shall be in his own time, and in his own way, and according to his own will. This is Unveiling Jesus Christ. Hi, welcome to another podcast on Unveiling Jesus Christ. I'm John Cassinet, and I'm the purveyor of this podcast, as always. Today we're going to be covering the first three verses in Revelation chapter 2. These verses contain Christ's commendations to the saints in ancient Ephesus. And you might be asking yourself uh, initially, what do I care about the Ephesians? <laughs> At the conclusion of my last podcast, uh, I talked a little bit about how the seven churches foreshadow the modern church. It's a little bit like the parable of the ten virgins and their representation of the modern church today. The difference being that the seven churches have a lot more detail and illustration of what members of the church can or, and should do or that don't and should be doing in order to prepare themselves to have oil in their lamps at the time of the second coming. So let me kind of emphasize this a little bit more with a discussion of the Last Supper, which occurred on the night before the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Now, you'll remember that during the Last Supper, Christ announced that one of the twelve would betray him. It would have been really easy for the eleven Galilean apostles to blame Judas, who was the sole Judean among them and certainly not a favorite. Uh, he was the keeper of the purse and uh, John described him as a thief and uh, also a complainer. And so at the time of the Last Supper, as Jesus makes this pronouncement, it says this in Matthew 26, 22, quote, They were exceeding sorrowful and began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? Close quote. As you can see in this verse, each of the Twelve apostles in turn said, Lord, is it I, in response to the question or revelation that one of them would betray the Savior. Now, we need to use this and liken it to ourselves as we're told in 1 Nephi 19.23 for our profit and learning because it has lots of uh, real-world applications. And so when we think about the seven churches, sometimes there are commendations, sometimes there are condemnations. And what we need to do is when we see something that is good about the seven churches, we need to ask ourselves, Lord, is it I? In other words, do I have those same qualities in myself that the Lord would commend if he were writing a letter to me today? On the other hand, if the letters have something bad to say about the deeds or actions, labors, works of the people and members of the church in the seven cities, we, we need to ask ourselves the same question. Lord, is it I? In other words, do I exhibit some of those same kinds of traits that were condemned by the Lord? Now, here's the key. If something negative is said about the members of the church and we say to ourselves, Lord, is it I? And we have to honestly answer that, yeah, that looks a little bit like maybe. Maybe it even looks a lot like me. Uh, we have to be willing to accept that it is. Because if you immediately say, no, that's not me, then it makes it impossible for you to change yourself. So to admit that, yes, I have some weaknesses, I have some shortcomings, I have some reflections of myself that I'm seeing in these uh, members of the seven churches who are condemned, if you accept that you do have some of those qualities, then it's empowering because then you have the power to change. Now, it's it's not easy. Uh, it takes a, a lot of humility and meekness to kind of admit that, yeah, we're not perfect. Um, but if we do that, then it empowers us. But if there's always this denial about, no, that's not me, that's not me, then nothing's ever really going to happen. You have to have that kind of uh, recognition. And so I, I liken this to the cartoon version 
of Robin Hood, right? Uh, you'll remember that kind of at the outset of the movie, Robin Hood and Prince John are dressed up like these uh, female bandits. <laughs> and Robin Hood is a fortune teller. And this is right as the uh, royal coach is going by with Prince John and his snake uh, in the coach. And uh, they're waving around the uh, fortunes, fortunes. And so uh, they stop the coach and Robin Hood gets inside the coach with uh, PJ to uh, tell him his fortune and as he's talking he's describing PJ to himself and he and Robin Hood is saying I see a crown upon his noble brow and PJ says oodalali <laughs> and then uh, essentially he goes on to describe PJ as he's handsome and regal and majestic and lovable cuddly face and PJ's all the time repeating Yes, yes, that's me to a T. It really is. <laughs> and that's, how, that's kind of the attitude we have to have as we read these verses and study these verses about the seven churches, including our start here with the Ephesians, where the, the Savior starts out saying some very commendable things. And we could be saying, yes, yes, that's me to a T. <laughs> but I have to warn you, uh, next time, we're going to be talking about the next few verses in Revelation chapter 2. And guess what? The news is not so good. And you can't immediately change your tune and say, well, no, 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 that's not me to a T. Uh, because in reality, it could be. And so as long as you're willing to say both good and bad, yes, yes, that's me to a T, then you accept the power and responsibility to make some changes in your life and to learn from the mistakes of uh, Ephesians and others in the New Testament in these two chapters in the book of Revelation. And, you know, there's that old saying, I don't even know who said it about, you know, if we don't learn from the mistakes of history, then we're destined to repeat them. And, uh, and that's, that's the real lesson of the, uh, the seven cities and the, the great amount of detail that John includes in them. And that's why you should care about these seven cities, because they are us. They are a reflection of us in the modern world today. So with that little bit of an introduction, let's jump right into our discussion of what the Lord found commendable about these uh, saints in Ephesus. And we begin with Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, which says, quote, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Close quote. Now in my podcast from January 21st, 2024, that covered Revelation chapter 1, verses 16 and 18, I talked about the angel uh, of the church. And in that podcast, I described how the Joseph Smith translation of this verse changes the word angel to servant. And that's true of all of the uh, letters. So all of the letters are addressed to the angel of the church, but that really means to the servant. It was written to the bishop, but ultimately intended for the congregation of the saints. And here, of course, specifically, we're talking about the church of Ephesus. Now, in all likelihood, there was only one church in that city. There's not much reason to think that there were multiple congregations of the same church in Ephesus. That may have been early, at an earlier time, that that could have been true in the days, kind of the glory days of Paul in 50, 60 AD. But that was, uh, you know, 40, 30, 40 years uh, before the letter of John is being written to the church. It's under siege. Um, there's a lot of apostasy occurring. And so in all likelihood, uh, by the time John's letter is written in 96 AD, we're talking about one church, one bishop specifically in the uh, city of Ephesus, which was a pretty large city. If you, you can go back and listen to my podcasts on uh, these churches generally and uh, find out more about the demographics. But uh, uh, in all likelihood, we're talking about this one church where all Christians were assembled to meet together as members of this one church. And uh, so, again, if you want to get more information about uh, Ephesus, go back and check out my uh, Come Follow Me podcast number six from November 5th 
of 2023. I'll throw up quickly the map of uh, the location of the seven cities to give you a general sense of the uh, location of Ephesus as a seaport city on the coast of the Aegean Sea. It's in uh, what we would call modern Turkey today. Uh, coincidentally, um, I'm happy to report that um, my wife and I have plans to go with my brother and his wife to uh, Ephesus in April of this year, and I'm going to be posting videos. So that's something that you can uh, watch for in the future. And with all the craziness going on over in the Middle East, uh, we weren't sure we were going to be able to go, but we're going <laughs> to we're going to go. Away we go. So uh, at any rate, uh, this uh, particular city is located about 60 miles north and east of Patmos Island. It was the location of the great temple of Diana, who in the Greek world was known as Artemis. It uh, boasted one of the seven wonders of the ancient world in that temple, but it was also a place of great wickedness and ritual prostitution, the mystical arts, idolatry, and emperor worship. So um, that's kind of some of the things that were going on at the time when uh, John was banished, probably from the city of Ephesus to Patmos in his day. There's also a tradition that uh, Mary the mother of Jesus lived with John in Ephesus until the time of her death and uh, so they have a, a supposed site where she was buried in, there in the city. Um, and so the Ephesian saints uh, are people because John lived there, he would be intimately familiar with these saints. And of course, as I mentioned a moment ago, Paul uh, was a uh, missionary in the city. He actually spent three years uh, preaching and proselyting in missionary. I guess he must have been a mission president if he was there for three years. <laughs> so that would make sense. But at any rate, so we now want to focus just very briefly on uh, the statement in this verse that says, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand. Now when John writes the letter, uh, we have to remember that the content is really coming from Jesus Christ. Jesus is the author, and I call John the Scrivener. He's writing it down, but it's being dictated by Jesus Christ. And the attribute identified here in uh, this verse about Christ holding the seven stars in his right hand is also identified in Revelation 1.13 as one of his attributes. And all six letters have the same type of... Uh, writing style where something about the attributions of Christ are present in the letters. And this is one of them where it says he holdeth the seven stars in his right hand. So this is a symbol of Christ's power to spiritually preserve the seven leaders in the seven churches because that's who the stars are. They're not stars, stars. They're, they're these seven leaders in the seven churches. And this promise or this idea that he holds the leaders of the church in his right hand, I think extends logically and necessarily to faithful members of the church. It extends to you and I, but we have to demonstrate uh, faithfulness and obedience to the commandments if we want to have that kind of protection. Now, moving on quickly again, uh, we have the statement in this verse that says, Christ walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. And again, this was also previously described in my podcast from January 24, 21st of uh, this year, where I described Revelation 113. And as I talked about there, and as made clear in Revelation chapter 1, verse 20, the seven golden candlesticks or lampstands represent the seven churches. They are the light. Uh, they are the, the lampstands that support the light that emanates from Christ, indicating that the Spirit of Jesus Christ is in the midst of the ancient saints. Uh, bearing in mind, again, there's always these caveats and conditions that each person has to be worthy to feel the Lord's presence, and for the light of Christ to be reflected through a person, you have to be living a righteous life. You can't expect to live your life uh, in non-conformity with the teachings and doctrines of Jesus Christ and expect that his light is going to shine through you. Uh, it just doesn't work that way. Let's move on to uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 2, which states, quote, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience 
and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars." Close quote. So this verse is, is packed with a lot of uh, good stuff here. First of all, keep in mind that this is the Savior speaking. When he says, I know thy works, this is Jesus Christ speaking. It expresses his omnipresence and his omniscience. Uh, the, uh, the action of the, the Ephesians, as is the case with us, is open. It's, uh, it's before his fiery, piercing eyes, as described in Revelation 1.14. Second uh, Nephi 9.20 states it in this manner. It says, Christ knoweth all things, and there is not anything save he knows it. Close quote. And so this same phrase, I know thy works, is found in all seven letters. And again, it is expressive of the fact that Christ knows everything about us and everything that is going on in our life. It also states uh, here that I know thy labor. So what this means is Christ knew the intense labor, which means the toil and troubles of the Ephesians who were doing their best to be um, faithful members of the church. Uh, the Greek word kapos means a beating and a kind of weariness. So when you think of the labors of the Ephesians in their faithfulness, the Greek word implies that they were taking a beating. They're getting tired. It's a word that is associated with wailing and grief and a beating of the breast. And so it talks about this kind of excessive labor and toil that produces grief or sadness. And so that's the kind of thing going on with the Ephesian saints. It was not easy to be a faithful member of the church in those days. And we can frankly count our lucky stars and, and the blessings we have that, that we don't have those kinds of challenges today that they lived in. Now, that's not to say that they're not going to return, but for now, we can be grateful that we don't have the kind of labor uh, that the Ephesians experienced in their day. So if you're feeling a little bit weighed down and feeling like, uh, you know, the whole world is uh, weighing down upon you, just think of the Ephesians and be grateful. And think also, what was it that motivated them to go through this type of grief, this wailing and uh, the toil that produces such grief and sadness because of uh, persecutions from outside the church. And we're talking about physical persecution here uh, where you could lose your life for being a member of the church and uh, the kinds of uh, tragedies that uh, uh, can be talked about, you know, and, and you have to recognize that there's really only one thing that could possibly motivate people to endure those kinds of tribulations and that was their inspiration of their love of God um, and that's what we need to have in our day and uh, we have to uh, possess that. We also have to pay, possess a great deal of patience and that's the next phrase that we find here in uh, this first second verse in Ephesians 2. The Lord says, I know thy patience and so this the patience that he's talking about here is in relation to the trials and labor of the Ephesians. In general, the Ephesians had been a very patient people. They had continued faithful in their service to God for more than 40 years since the time Paul first came among them and preached the gospel in a city that was nearly opposite the doctrinal teachings that uh, Paul had. And so they had endured in tr under trial is what this means, this concept of patience. And another way of talking about patience is the idea that uh, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. <laughs> That's what patience is all about. It's an essential Christian virtue and Christ is our exemplar. Think of what would have happened if Christ had not endured to the end, that he didn't have patience to say, you know what, I, I've had enough for today. Uh, the, he has a nice uh, quiet meal with his disciples in the upper room, and you'll remember that it talks about how he started to feel very heavy and the, the weight of the world was upon him. And what if he just said, you know what, I just can't take this anymore. 
I'm tired. I need a break. Uh, what an unthinkable catastrophe that would have been, but it's no less a catastrophe in our individual lives if we take the same position and just say, you know what, I'm going on vacation from my spirituality. I'm, I'm going to do something different. And, and as people do that, it's, it's kind of the same type of uh, catastrophe in a microcosm of our own world. So the idea of patience is a submission to the providential appointments of God. And so even when it's seemingly improvident and unmerited that we should go through hardships, that we should have trials in our lives, it's also an in indispensable aid in the cultivation of godliness. And so the one of the things that I wanna emphasize here just a little bit is this concept of patience is more than passive endurance. It is active perseverance. We shouldn't be merely silent sufferers in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if I can borrow an aircraft analogy from Elder Uchtdorf, um, you know, I'm not a, a pilot, I'm not a Navy aviator, uh, I'm not Maverick. <laughs> I look like him, right? But I'm not Maverick, all right? Um, but uh, you know, when, you when an aircraft takes off, from an aircraft carrier out at sea, the first thing they do before they have the aircraft starting to take off is they turn the aircraft carrier into the wind and then they hit the throttle, you know, pedal to the metal because what they wanna do is create as much headwind as possible as those aircraft take off from the aircraft carrier. And so I liken this to adversity in our lives. The, the adversity that is like this headwind that is hitting us in the face. And as we lean into it, uh, we kind of put our wings out there. We get the lift between uh, under our wings and, and it lifts us, it elevates us. And so that's, that's the analogy that we, we don't, when these headwinds start to hear us, we just kind of huddle down. You know, you got the image of, uh, of cows in the wintertime when you get a big headwind. They all basically turn their rear end to the, uh, to the wind and they slowly drift down in the wind until they hit some corner of a fence. And, you know, I've heard of, uh, of cases and seen some uh, images, these cows in these uh, big storms. I mean, these are big storms, I grant you, very, very freezing temperatures well below zero. And all these cows are huddled up in this little corner and many of them have died uh, just lying on top of each other and suffocating each other. Um, and so we can't be silent sufferers. We gotta, we gotta lean into the wind. We gotta lean into the uh, adversity that sometimes God gives us in our lives to uh, help us to cultivate this uh, Christian virtue of godliness. And that's, that's really kind of what it's all about. Now there are two Greek words translated as patience in uh, the New Testament. The, uh, the first word is macrothymia. And that's the kind of patience that is regarding people. It's a long suffering. It's a gift of the spirit. And the, the other uh, Greek word is hypomone, uh, the uh, patience with regard to things. So patience in tribulation. It was the type of patience that Christ endured when he was on the cross. And so uh, we encounter the, this type of patience uh, that is described here uh, using the first macrothymia, uh, which is patience regarding people in this long suffering being a gift of the spirit. We encounter this again in uh, Revelation chapter 14, verse 12, which states, quote, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus Christ, close quote. Now to put this verse in perspective for you just a little bit, Revelation 14, 12 is at the end of the second woe before the harvest of exaltation worthy saints begins. So now we're talking about patience here in Revelation back in 96 AD, the commandment the Lord gives and the commendation is that the Ephesian saints have been patient. Well, what that means essentially is you have exhibited 
the type of patience that it takes to endure to the end, and the end being essentially when we get to the point of the second coming and Christ is going to harvest the exaltation where these souls lift them up, whether they are dead, whether they are living, it is those who have endured to the end in patience will be those that are lifted up to reign with Christ. And that great, uh, what a lot of people call the rapture, um, when that takes place at the second coming. So we have two visions of the same kind of thing. The one in here in Ephesians uh, among the Ephesians, telling us what the patience is that is required of us and the results of that patience in Revelation 14, 12 that uh, is describing those that will be lifted up at the last days. And so you kind of have to look at this in both senses. The Lord isn't just telling the Ephesians and you and I that we need to be patient. He then uses the same imagery and statements to show those that are patients in the way that I have described are those who will be exaltation worthy and they will be harvested with the righteous saints at the time of the second coming to then reign with Christ on Mount Zion. So that's the message of uh, patience in uh, Revelation 2.2. Now moving on, it also set, gives some indications of what the Ephesian saints have done well in regard to being patient and enduring uh, afflictions that they're presented with. And it says, I know, meaning Christ, I know how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And so this is this is a commendation. This is a compliment. Uh, this is not some. It's a little bit ambiguous, but it's not describing them in an evil way. What it's essentially saying is, I, the Lord Jesus Christ, know that you cannot tolerate those that are evil among you, and you have no sympathy for the false doctrines and practices of other people who are members of the church. So the them in this particular verse, in this phrase of the verse, is essentially evil people who claim they were apostles, and yet they are not. They are people who are, in reality, uh, the Nicolaitans that uh, we'll be talking about in more detail in the following verses uh, next time we, we get together. But um, essentially, this is a kind of a similarity to what we find in Acts 20, 29 through 30, where Paul was warning that this was going to happen, that you have these false apostles, you have uh, people coming into the church uh, who present false doctrine and false practices. He says this, quote, For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock, also of your own selves, shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them, close quote. So that's Paul's warning and admonition uh, to many of the converts. And I don't think it's limited to the people in Ephesus because uh, his influence was uh, very broad. And so he's really talking to uh, everyone who he's had influence over. And his warning is, hey, when I'm gone and that probably happened in roughly 66 AD with his execution by Nero in the city of Rome. He's saying essentially, when I'm gone, uh, there are going to be grievous wolves coming in among you, the sheep, and they will not spare the flock. And now this is basically John about 30 years later saying, it's happened. We, we have arrived. The grievous wolves have entered, but among the Ephesian saints, the good news is you have demonstrated that you have no sympathy for their false doctrines and their practices. So the them in this verse is referring to Antichrist that John also talked about in his epistles, which were written after the book of Revelation was written. And so when we think about an Antichrist, um, we have to recognize that many times they assume the guise of Christ, but in reality are opposed to him. So you, you shouldn't think of Antichrist in the sense that, uh, oh, this person is obviously antagonistic toward Jesus Christ. He speaks in blasphemous terms. It's easy to recognize 
that he is not a follower of Jesus Christ. He is openly opposed. He is an apostate to everything that Christ represents. And those are the easy ones. The more challenging antichrists are those that look a lot like Christ, but have doctrines and teachings that are opposed to his pure doctrine. And so, as we have been told in the scriptures, we're all supposed to be of, there should be one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and we can't carve out doctrinal exceptions. And yet, within the church today, um, and uh, you'll see it happening where you get people challenging not Christ, but his doctrines. Doctrines about the priesthood, doctrines about marriage between a man and a woman, uh, and these kinds of things. Doctrines about sexuality. And, uh, and so these are societal things that we're facing, and you feel pressures within the church from various groups of people who say, well, maybe we should make some uh, modifications. And we find this transition occurring within the Catholic Church. There's a lot of news about transgender and blessing transgenders, and uh, you, you see it. So our church is not immune to these kind of societal pressures, but all of these things that want to make changes in the Lord's pure doctrine and his truth, if it's coming from beneath, from underneath, then that's Antichrist. If the Lord wants to change his policies and uh, what he's going to have as the truths in the gospel, it's up to him. He's omnipresent. He's omnipotent. Uh, he can essentially do what he wants, consistent with law, uh, but far be it from us to tell him he can't do it or us to tell him what he could and should be doing. But as long as the Lord has his doctrines, for us to oppose them and try and carve out doctrinal exceptions, that's Antichrist. And they can look a lot like Christ. Christ is merciful. Christ is benevolent. He loves all people, no matter what their orientation or who they are, what the color of their skin. It matters not. He loves these people. And so to say that, well, we should change the doctrines to be more tolerant, um, that is Antichrist because it looks a lot like Christ but in reality is opposed to Christ because it's coming from men and women who think that they should dictate the way the Lord should be running his kingdom. Now, the Greek preposition anti is kind of an interesting word because it means instead of. It also means face to face. So it's like this, it's this kind of counterfeit mirror image. Examples of this would include the Gnostics who taught that God is a substanceless spirit, not a resurrected being. And so what you have in the Gnostic teachings are you have an image, this anti-image. If you look in the mirror, their teachings look a lot like Christ. In other words, they teach that Jesus was the Christ, but they teach him as a substanceless spirit. And so the doctrine is counterfeit. Even though it looks kind of like Christ, it's the old saying, if it looks like a duck, and it quacks like a duck, and it walks like a duck, it must be a duck, unless it's a goose. <laughs> you know, and so essentially, this teaching by the Gnostics uh, was something that uh, came down in the late first century, and we credit Hegesippus, who was one of the first apostolic period historians. He wrote during the second century, and uh, he was a Jewish Christian. He wrote five books on the church and heresies within the book, it, within the church. It, his works were quoted extensively by Eusebius in the early fourth century. So the Gnostics were basically a people who kind of came out of the closet, if I can use that colloquially term, uh, in the uh, first late first century, and uh, they thrived during the second century A.D., but uh, they eventually were kind of uh, gone by about the fifth century. And so uh, they kind of came out once the death of the apostles occurred and there was this kind of a vacuum in leadership and what they had taught somewhat in secretly and uh, 
behind the curtains a little bit. Uh, when the apostles were gone, they kind of came and uh, were very prominent in the uh, churches. And so uh, the, the Book of Mormon describes the type of wickedness that occurred after the apostles were gone. And uh, the uh, false teachers were basically preaching a substitute gospel. And John essentially calls it a falsely named knowledge. This is identical to the phrase used in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6, verse 20. And so no, the, the Gnostic names comes from the term knowledge. And so the similarity between them can be found with Sherem in the Book of Mormon in Jacob chapter 7, with Nahor in Alma chapter 1, with Korahor in Alma chapter 30. All of these were antichrist, and all of them in many ways taught a doctrine that had overlap and correlations with the doctrines of Jesus Christ. So they would be appealing to Christ-minded people, but then perverse enough that it would lead them away uh, into forbidden paths. And so uh, apostate members of the church uh, are led by these type of false doctrine and ultimately leave the church. And these false teachers uh, who teach a false Christ instead of a true Christ. Now, these false prophets uh, came about in the church at Ephesus as the apostolic age kind of comes to an end at the end of the first century. And this was predicted by the Savior. Uh, in Matthew 24, 11, he talks about how many false prophets would arise and deceive many. And this is what happened, of course, uh, when the, uh, the true apostles were gone and were dead, except for uh, the apostle John himself. And so the church was basically drifting into a condition of apostasy with the loss of church leadership. And so uh, along comes these uh, false teachers who even sometimes assume the role of replacement apostles um, within the ranks of the church. And they do so initially by stealth and by secrecy, and then more openly as time continues on. And this is what is said about this in uh, 2 Peter 2, 1 through 2, that also contains the warning similar to that of Paul in the book of Acts. Peter says this, quote, but there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and many shall follow their pernicious ways. Close quote. So these false teachers uh, became increasingly open in their claims of false authority to the point of claiming apostleship. Now it's difficult in today's world for people to come right out and make others believe that, hey, I'm an apostle. They, they say words that suggest they are assuming the authority of an apostle, like I have the, the power and ability to change the doctrines of the church, to change the policies and procedures of the church, but everybody knows who the apostles are. And so it's not like they can uh, put forth these false claims and assume the guise of the apostleship because that won't work in today's world like it did in the ancient world. But these apostles anciently who were tried by the Ephesians are those who were authorized messengers or representatives that, that lacked true authority. So they were professing to have the priesthood and ecclesiastical endorsement, but their teachings were false based on their false authority. So you can kind of have three types of claim of apostleship in the days of John as he's writing his letter to the Ephesians. You have those that were called to the office of apostleship after the Savior ascended, as Paul was. Then you have those that claim the honor of his name or office by some election to it. And the third is, these, you have those who claim to be the successors of the apostles through a succession of authority. This would be true of the bishops in Rome, who claim the succession of Peter's authority after the death of Peter and the other apostles. So we have different ways in which the apostleship can be claimed, but whatever was the form of the false apostles who came among the Ephesians, we learn in this verse that 
the Ephesians tried them, which say they are apostles and are not, and found them liars. <laughs> you know, I like how John is serious. He just puts it right out there. These guys are liars. <laughs> and so the, the work, the word for uh, in Greek for liars is uh, or for this idea of testing these liars is to do so by experience, uh, an experiment. Not so much that uh, we're giving them a test. Now, if you can answer these ten questions, then we'll assume you're a true prophet. But if you can't, then you're not. It's it's kind of experimental, and John doesn't really tell us how their fraud was confirmed. But we know that uh, the Savior warned in Matthew 7.20 that there would be these false prophets. And he said, by their fruits ye shall know them. So presumably, the manner in which the fraud of these false apostles was detected was because of their evil fruits. And uh, these are reasonably easy to detect because many of the fruits of people like the Nicolaitans that we'll talk about in Revelation 2.6 were so contrary to the teachings of the gospel that even though the, the church was drifting toward apostasy, some of the teachings were so blatantly wrong that it would be easy to detect them as false fruits, and therefore you could know that they were they were liars. Now, I think it's important to recognize that uh, when the Savior, writing through John, of course, calls these false apostles liars, um, I take that as something more than uh, negligence. In other words, they knew that they were misrepresenting themselves. They're not simply zealous members of the church who are a little bit misguided or maybe a little bit negligent in, in their doctrinal beliefs and uh, the teachings, uh, um, that they acted with good motives. No, 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 no. These guys are liars. They don't have good motives. And so apostasy, by definition, is changing the truth of God into a lie. We find that in Romans chapter 1 verse 25. In Alma 5 uh, 38 through 40 it talks about these are those who do not hearken to the voice of the good shepherd. And so if you don't hearken to the good shepherd then you're part of the devil's fold and whosoever denieth this is a liar is what we're told in Alma 5. So Sherem uh, who I mentioned a moment ago is the Antichrist from uh, Jacob chapter 7 who as he had asked for a sign and was ultimately given a sign by, uh, by Jacob because he was struck with a physical affliction basically on his deathbed Sherem is saying quote I have lied unto God for I have denied the Christ close quote and so he eventually meets his uh, ignominious death much like Korahor after him and uh, and so that's the the nature of an antichrist is they are lying unto God and making lies about the truths of the gospel so now unfortunately the Ephesian church eventually welcomed these and other false teachers into their midst with open arms this we see in 2nd Timothy chapter 4 verses 3 and 4 with a prophecy by the Apostle Paul who said for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers, having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned unto fables. Close quote. What we learn from this is that the real threat to the church was not external opposition, but inner corrosion. It was the Gnosticism within the church that began with this fraud and this delusion of false teachers. Now, let me give you an illustration of this uh, by one of, uh, one of the people called the Christian Fathers, and this is Clement of Alexandria. He lived in about 150 to 215 AD. He was a Christian theologian and philosopher who taught in Alexandria, and he claimed to have the true gnosis. Uh, it was not true revelation and so uh, he was one of these that kind of espoused these Gnostic teachings and said this is the true gospel of Jesus Christ when in reality what it was was 
the Greek religious philosophy. It was Hellenistic in nature. And this was for him revelation. Again, he's one of the Christian fathers who basically was instrumental in forming the, the doctrines of the church, uh, not in a positive way. And uh, eventually was, uh, you know, one of those who inspired the, uh, the apostasy, although he was a little bit later in time. And by that time, the uh, apostasy had taken uh, full root. And he is a reflection of that, essentially. All right, let's move on to uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 3, the last one we'll be talking about today. After, in verse 2, it describes how they had tried these fake apostles. They figured out that they were liars. Then it says, quote, And hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. Close quote. So these are words of praise to the Ephesians that are repeated essentially again in Revelation 2-3. But you, you don't notice it immediately, but I'm going to show you how it's true. The word order is actually reversed from the commendations given in verse 2. And so what we're going to have here is a mirror image to form a poetic chiasmus. And as I've mentioned before, this is a form of Hebrew poetry with parallelism in, in the second or subsequent line. So these parallel lines of thought can be a synonym or synonymous expression, something that is amplified. In the following line, you might have a contrast of an opposing thought. You might have a completion of a thought. And sometimes the repetition of the idea is also in reverse order, which actually occurs in these verses. So that is what gives rise to a chiasmus, which literally means from its Hebrew roots, crossing. So it's like an, an X like this. And so essentially what you're going to get is the, these types of patterns can be found in, in many verses. It can be in entire chapters or groups of chapters in certain scriptures. But the main theme or message is stressed in the center of the chiasma. It's like this hourglass, right? The, where you get down to the middle, that's the focal point in the middle and here in this chiastic pattern you can see it in the following way so we're putting up here uh, what these verses say essentially and you're going to see the reverse order and so in line a it says i know thy works and then you go down to the bottom of it at the end of verse three where it talks about you've not fainted lines b focus on labor line c focus on patience and lines D and D then are talking about the fact you can't bear them which are evil and you have borne all of this in the ways that are depicted. And so you can see the kind of pattern that exists. So in the first half, you commend the Ephesians for laboring to reject evil within the church and the repeated praise in reverse order commends the Ephesians for enduring persecution generally and from outside the church without fainting. So one final little brief comment on this concept of fainting. Uh, what we're talking about here is a spiritual kind of fainting. It's not the kind of fainting that John experienced physically when he saw the Savior in Revelation 1.17, and when he saw the majesty of his person, John faints and falls over as if he was dead, and then Christ then raises him by the right hand, of course. That's, that's not the kind of fainting that we're here talking about. Here we're talking about you haven't spiritually fainted. And this is reflected in 2 Corinthians 4, 16, 17, which states, quote, For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Close quote. And I like that verse a lot, but again, the idea is, is you, if you are spiritually strong and you don't faint spiritually, these are the kinds of promises that are made to you, that the Lord will renew us day by day. Our afflictions, which seem heavy, will be made light. 
they will be but for a moment, and then we are rewarded with this more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, which the Doctrine and Covenants, of course, in section 132, associates with exaltation and eternal life. So fainting not is not only a quality that will get you into the celestial kingdom, it is the type of quality that if you possess it, you will be able to receive that far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And I, I hope that that will be the case for all of us. And I, I hope we can learn from the lessons of the Ephesians that as false teachings are presented to us and come among us, that we will try them and uh, we will discern for ourselves through the power of the Spirit what is truth and what the Lord would have us know. And as we do so, then uh, we won't faint and we have the, these kinds of blessings that await us. So this is the, the good news uh, of the week for uh, commendation and praise. If you liken it unto yourself and you say, yes, yes, it's me to a T, <laughs> then good for you. But next week, bad news, because in the next three verses that we'll be talking about in Revelation, uh, or two verses in Revelation 2, 4, and 5, we're going to be talking about the uh, Savior's condemnation and criticism of these same saints. So it's a good news, bad news for the Ephesian saints. And uh, I think that's probably true of all of us in our lives, isn't it? We all, we all do some things good and some things not so good. And so uh, we just have to prepare ourselves and be humble enough to receive it. But thanks for listening. Thanks for subscribing and sharing. Uh, thanks to... Uh, Jenna Daly for all the technical stuff. I'll see you next Saturday for Revelation 2, 4 through 5, which is a call to repent for uh, the Ephesians leaving their first love. And I guarantee you it is definitely not a rom-com. I'll see you then.